The Loose Cannons podcast is a free-form discussion about film that contains mature language, such as poop and titty, and descriptions of mature situations, such as filing taxes and raising children. We do not have any concern for spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film or films we are discussing and don't want to have the twists ruined for you, please watch the film before listening to the podcast. Have you... Have you ever shuffled faces like cards, hoping to find the one that lies somewhere just over the edge of your memory? The one you've been waiting for. Well, tonight, when I first saw you, and later when I watched you in the darkness, it was as though I'd found that one face among all others. Who are you? Hey everyone, it's another Loose Cannons podcast coming at you. Today we're going to be discussing 1948's Letter from an Unknown Woman, directed by Max Ophels. And joining us today, replacing Ilya on the podcast, is contributor Stephen Green. Hello, Hello Stephen. Hello, Rory. How are you all doing? <laughs> doing excellent. Excellent. Ro- Rory Ben. Yeah. R- R- Ruben. <laughs> Looking forward to talking yeah. about some Has letters it, uh... for some unknown women. <laughs> yeah. Wait, were there more than one? <laughs> I'll get into one. Multiple <laughs> letters from multiple unknown women. Yes. <laughs> you probably we're, didn't we're get more than very back in the day. sorted histories. Yeah. <laughs> I got Q, That would be a funny ending X. to this movie as he just files the letter into <laughs> a drawer where he's got like... A ton of letters from all Well, I guess I'm going to go get shot for someone else tonight. Was it Yeah, it um, come out and tell <laughs> the end that he's like, on near the end, that he's not a piano player anymore. So at the beginning of the movie, I was like, why is he still reading this? Doesn't he get like fan mail all the time? <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, before we do what we're already doing, which is discussing the movie, we have a little segment we like to call Harold's and Announcements. Yeah. Patrick? All right. Um, I'm going to... Man, I've been denouncing a lot of movies this year, but uh, I'm going to denounce another movie that I saw in the theater... Uh, that that's what I'm Co- about to see. <laughs> if it's Scott <laughs> Cooper's Hostels, then yep, <laughs> yep, that's it. Every there we time. go. Basil's about to see it. I'm denouncing it. Um, it does what I I didn't see either A Quiet Passion or uh, Lost City of Zed last year, but everybody said that they were woke baying like hell. And this movie is definitely woke baying, but in the wild wild west. Uh, so we get Christian Bale as a he starts off as like a racist. You know, a soldier who who hates Native American people, and then eventually he comes to respect West Studi because he's you know such a gentle, noble spirit or whatever. Um, and it does that whole thing where it's like it applies really like woke things to characters and in, in this like historical setting where it's like I don't know if that was really what those people would be saying like. They seem a little too woke to me to sure. have been in that setting. And um, Rosamund Pike's also in this as a woman who has been traumatized because uh, Comanches killed her family. But uh, she also learns to, you know, not be uh, racist towards the gentle Native American people that are being escorted to. Uh, the whole thing is like Christian Bale and Wes Studi have uh, this like history of fighting each other and West Studi is a captive prisoner and he has to escort him to Montana to take him to his home so he can die and because he has cancer or whatever and so that that's the the whole plot of the movie and it's like a kind of a road movie kind of a like journey where lots Bloody of people get movie. yeah, yeah <laughs> kind of, I don't know a lot of people get shot and die in this movie uh Timothy Chalamet at any point do they stop believing <laughs> Because if they stop believing, then it's not really a journey, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, they they they're start really explicit they, on whether or not you yeah, to stop. They actually believing. start believing at a certain <laughs> point, and then they never <laughs> stop at the end. It sounds to me like Christian Bale really liked Malik's for New World, and so mm-hmm. he assumes that Malik was making a sequel, 
And then when he found <laughs> out he was accidentally a knight of cups, he decided to be in a knockoff instead. <laughs> it seems that way. And Sky Cooper uh, also directed him in uh, Out of the Furnace oh, God. a few uh, several years ago. So I, I believe that's uh, the connection there. Matt Lynch's um, uh, review of this movie is very funny. <laughs> it's just I'll one have to sentence. Look that one up. Yeah, it's just one sentence. He said, yeah. add Scott Cooper to the list of directors who should not be trying to remake The Searchers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My my review was also one sentence on this one. It just said, Woke Bays of the Wild West. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, yeah. The Wild Wild West? Wild Wild. The Wiki Wiki Wild Wild. <laughs> Desperado, don't want none of this six gun in this. Uh, that would have yeah. been really anachronistic. <laughs> they did a rap in the middle of it. Cisco was there. Bale did a really Straight. unconventional <laughs> technique, and he lost enough muscle mass to turn into a giant robotic spider at the end. <laughs> this movie went a totally different direction than I was expecting. Wow, so I like it. way past the point when you mentioned it, but now we can. I just thought of the term woke bale. <laughs> he is a woke Gives bale. Gives the term machinist another name. <laughs> <laughs> woke uh, bailing. Okay, Basil? I'm going to go ahead and uh, denounce another new movie, uh, David Wayne's new movie that just came out on Netflix, uh, A Futile and Stupid Gesture. Um, I get, I'm very annoyed with this title because I thought it was a stupid and futile gesture, which I think makes more sense as a thing to say, but, so I've been calling it that, but seems, seems, uh, funnier to say something as stupid and also a complete waste of time rather than a complete waste of time and also stupid, but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, it's occasionally funny. Will Forte is fine doing his normal Will Forte shtick. Uh, I think he works a little better in television than in movies because he uh, kind of does the same thing every time, but it's fine. Uh, but there's, like, some real weird moments where, like, I guess because David Wayne actually, like, looks up to and respects this dude who created the National Lampoon, and, like, wants to, like, tell his story, he ends up making, like, a movie that is, like, sincere in ways that I was like, this is, like, the kind of movie you usually make fun of, David Wayne. Like, like usually you make parodies of, like, this kind of, like, very bland, like, biopic-y, like, tropes or whatever, but instead it's, like, played very straight, and I was like, this is weird. This is... <laughs> His descent into drug abuse especially is, like, lifted straight out of literally every movie about drugs. And I was like, yeah, thanks, I guess. Seems seems like a fun dude. I don't know. <laughs> Doug uh, Kenny. Yeah. It does have a really funny, weird thing that makes fun of the audience if they don't know anything about the real guy. But I don't know mm. if I should spoil that or not. If anyone else on this podcast is I, uh, planning well, to watch I, it, I, yeah, it wouldn't spoil it for me because I watched the uh, documentary about the National. Oh sure, Olympian, yeah, yeah. Is, uh, I kind of know. I know what the what the story is there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, um, yeah, I'll go ahead and. See. Yeah, you denounced that documentary, didn't uh, you? Yep, I sure did. <laughs> yeah, turns out the fi- <laughs> fictional version's not very good either. Drunk Stone, but, uh, Brilliant Dead, I believe is what it was called. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So the, the the joke that is actually a pretty good joke is that the movie starts with, like, an old man as Doug Kenny, like, narrating the movie, and then at the end of the movie you find out he died when he was 33, but, like, he's narrating it as if he's still alive and, like, an old man, and I was like, oh, that is pretty funny. <laughs> I was not That's expecting him to, to die because there's an old man there. It would be funnier if you did that with, like, an Abraham Lincoln biopic. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. retiring Someone at the president's retirement home. Relatively young. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, 
he's dictating the story of his life to JFK, yeah. who's also alive at the same time. <laughs> yeah, there we go. 140-year-old Lincoln. Yeah. Well, no, like, Lincoln is, like, 70, and he's telling, like, a 40-year-old, 45-year-old, whatever, like, 10 year, you know, five years older than whenever JFK died, 50, mm. <laughs> about his life. It's a perfect idea. I like it. Uh, Stephen, I hope you have a Herald, because otherwise it's going to be an old announcement. Yes, I do have a Herald, a 14-hour Herald. Yeah. 14-hour Herald. Yes, so I am... <laughs> is that how long the movie is, or how long you're going to talk about it? Uh, both, actually. Uh, so I'm going to be heralding the uh, film-slash-gallery installation Crude Oil by Bing Wang. Um, it's... I originally saw it just before I left for Paris last week, but it's really been... I, I came out of it with a somewhat positive reaction, but ever since then, I've been thinking about it all the time. Like, it really... It's grown in my estimation, especially in, like, the context of a lot of his work, spanning from, like, uh, his more macro documentary stuff, like West of the Tracks and Till Madness Do Us Part, kind of, like... Um, getting rid of the elements and like his more i don't know personal work like three sisters and miss fang which i don't really like that much it's basically just uh not really a, it was shot over a week but it's like um the day in a life of the series of uh, oil drillers in the gobi desert like the film literally starts in the morning as you see them getting up all the machinery and trying to make sure like the safety protocols being fall, uh, followed. And then as the film goes on, they get it gets more like lackadaisical, like they're doing the job at hand, but their energy is like slowly draining throughout the day. And it ends on this really nice shot that lasts for half an hour, which is you see uh, dusk rising, uh, dusk setting down at the camp as the, uh, like the moon is slowly covered and like these, uh, clouds that appear both from natural and as the uh, smoke fumes appear like consuming the uh, night landscape like what James Benning does in Nightfall and I've been thinking about it a lot because it's like originally I just thought of it as a film but then if when I read about the context of it being shown in an art gallery like some other films of this length, like Albert Serra's Singularity and whatnot, I realised you have the kind of a dissonance, like you're viewing this very working class, um, lower class project that's just the lives of these people in an installation that would attract these uh, upper class management and people to view themselves in this. And this is done quite a lot in like, I don't know, sculptures and pieces of art, but it's very rarely conveyed in film before, especially one of this length. And the mm. more I think about that, the more I think it's a really interesting project and one that I've very rarely seen replicated. Hmm. That sounds interesting. I promise I won't be that pretentious for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> no, no, by all means, be as pretentious yeah. as you like. Um, <laughs> So I, I guess I have a question. So you saw it in a, in a museum? Uh, I saw it in my flat, which I guess is a museum of some form. Oh, okay. <laughs> Never mind. I was just wondering, like, if some people, like, stand museum. for 14 hours to watch this I stood movie for, in I a stood museum. for about half an hour there. when I was making some dinner, so... <laughs> I don't know. If I do that 28 <laughs> times, it's fine. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um... Well, I will also be talking about a very popular, well-regarded children's classic, uh, just like that Wang Bing film. Uh. <laughs> yeah, children love this. I'm going to denounce Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> so, for the first, yeah, for the first like forty or so minutes before Gene Wilder shows up. Um, it was in contention for one of the worst movies that I've ever seen. <laughs> and I understand why people like it, because Gene Wilder really does actually give a very unhinged and strange performance. And I'm kind of curious to read the original source text, because I feel like his performance comes from there more mm -hmm. than the rest of the movie does. Um, but the movie itself is, well... 
first, you know, the director who made it has never made anything else <laughs> that's like well championed and there's a reason for it. It's very boring to look at when there isn't like a cool set. And there are cool sets and stuff, but even the cool sets are shot in a very uh staid way. Um and the lead actor after Gene Wilder, whoever plays Charlie Buckets, gives one of the worst performances I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, it, yeah, like yeah. Basil's mentioned about the Jungle Book, it feels mean to beat up on a small child for not being able to act. But, ooh, boy, can he not act? He always only ever has one emotion in each scene that he's in, and it's always very extreme. Like, mm. oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got to... Um, Rory, I'm not sure I can really disagree with your slant of other Mel Stewart classics like uh, What Stacks, If It Is Tuesday, This Must Be Belgium, Running on the Sun, The Bad Water 135, or uh, Four Days in November 1964 version. I mean, who can argue with that? Murderer's Row. I'm imagining that this was sort of like a Hunger Games situation and that they had the rights to something and they were just like, we need a director to make this film and they just grabbed someone off the rack essentially. And then this one was uh, six, like if there had been more Chocolate Factory movies, they probably would have, you know, brought in Francis Lawrence uh-huh. <laughs> That's to do the next three. Because he's played some video games before. Yeah. <laughs> we need somebody um, to play video games before. Yeah. And the thematics or the morality of this movie is very, very confused because, like, uh, again, like, I'm curious as to the source material, especially based on my knowledge of Roald Dahl's other works, that I think it's probably a lot more biting satire, mm-hmm. like, about the fact that there's this unhinged capitalist um, <laughs> who utilizes slave labor and has decided that morality is the way to... <laughs> And also murders his children. Factory, and yeah. he's going to, he's going to torture children in order to find yeah, the most moral one. That was one. an interesting thing. Uh, but the movie plays it very sweet. Yeah. Like, the movie is very, like, yeah. Um, what a nice this person. This was a good thing that he did. <laughs> yeah, how benevolent of him. <laughs> he to wanted keep to the, do things the right way. slaves. Uh, <laughs> how benevolent. <laughs> They're well, happy he, here. Like, oh god, the description of the Oompa land is so close to describing a white person, like describing Africa, that it's like super awful. Like, I was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's like, oh, you've never heard of the Oompa Loompa land or whatever. And he's like, there are wild beasts there that yeah. roam the desolate <laughs> plains where they, you know. And I'm like, oh my goodness, uh, <laughs> the rotten vermicious canids. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. So, yeah, uh, Child Reuben is uh, very rarely right, but my boredom with that movie, <laughs> when I first watched it, when I was like 14 or whatever. It's the it's Tim right Burton the film it's a boring the American movie. Film Institute list. <laughs> Which uh, one? It's the Tim Burton film on the American Film Institute list. <laughs> No. It's on Rosenbaum's <laughs> yeah, no. top 10 of the year or whatever. Yeah. It wasn't on his t- 1,000, no, but it was his it. number 10 movie of the year. I know it. Mitchell likes it. Yeah. I think yeah, it's Mitchell pr- likes it. Yeah. yeah. He, li- he thinks I it's... like it better than this one. Yeah, t- yeah. I do too. But yeah. I've seen it. it. Yeah, it's got <laughs> uh, movie, Mitchell's yeah. a big Roald Dahl fan. He read him a lot as a child, and uh, so he he feels like the, the Burton one gets the mean-spirited tone a little better hmm. yeah and the like just a hint of pedophilia <laughs> <laughs> in a really unnerving way in the in that one hmm. which is one of the reasons why i think people reacted so strongly negatively yeah. to yeah. uh tim burton's movie they're like oh that character what? Willy Wonka, who i really liked because he talked about how imagination is so cool when I was a child. Oh, he likes children a little too much in this one. <laughs> People are, who are really invested in children's imaginations little, tend little, to be pedophiles. A little, <laughs> little bit of a Michael Jackson vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going on or, in Johnny Depp's version. Or, or even anyway. like a, you know, another Johnny Depp character, J.M. Barry. A little bit of a pedophilia vibe, so who knows? <laughs> Oh, I'm leaving Barry alone. 
No, sorry. He was <laughs> a little bit rumors. of a pedophile, though. No, he isn't. Does the podcast usually go in this direction? Show me your sources. Uh, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. There's a reading of Peter Pan. Don't fact check me. <laughs> don't, don't. No fact checks. Citation needed. Oh, I. I <laughs> never mind. Jim Barry, throw him under the bus. I don't care. Uh, I was thinking of um, Lewis Carroll. Oh no, oh, Lewis Carroll. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. I think Lewis Carroll was was kind of woke actually. Yeah, he's, he's a little he's a little bit woke for for the time that he was in. Okay. All right. Now to get to the to <laughs> different substance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of this podcast, which also has a, I mean, I you know you could say some pedophilia vibes, <laughs> but in the way in which all movies pre like nineteen seventy thought of women who were sixteen as like. On the cusp of being something really sexy. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Anyways, the plot of this movie, since this was my pick, it takes place in Vienna and opens with a man named Stefan kind of stumbling out of a carriage with his buddies uh, after a hard night of partying. Um, and he says that he's going to leave town because he's been challenged to a duel and he's not about that business. Um, when... He goes upstairs to his apartment. His uh, butler delivers him the titular letter from an unknown woman, from a woman named Lisa. And she has written him this letter, which is the plot, uh, the main plot of the film. She details uh, how he moved in uh, as, you know, her neighbor when she was younger, and how she fell in love with him by listening to his music, and how eventually they had a short tryst, but he left her. Um, and she raised their son with by marrying another man, um, and then finally ran into him again uh, at a concert one night, and uh, when he didn't recognize her, she left him again and uh, sent him this letter. And there's obviously little details in there, but that's basically the yep. plot of the yep. film. And then she died of typhoid. As as yep. one did, and her son, and her son died of typhoid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were on ty- that whole family was like having typhoid fever. Yeah, they were like they, they all about that. Went yeah. into that to that quarantined carriage. They shouldn't have yeah. gone into. Oh. It's probably filled with lice. From what I've read, Soderbergh would have something to say about. <laughs> yeah, also a love account of worms. <laughs> all right, Patrick. Um, I liked this movie. Um, I think it's it, it feels very uh, proto earrings of Madame de. There's a lot of similarities to it, um, but I like the kind of grand sweeping way that Ophels shoots everything. There's these shots that move through these really like intricate, beautiful interiors, and sometimes through the interiors to the exteriors, and kind of follows characters as they move through the scene and. It's, you know, it, it, it feels sort of like classically sweeping in that way. And I, I also kind of like the, like, I don't know, kind of like confused, doomed romance thing that's going on throughout. Because it, it kind of feels like, oh, something tragic has already happened at the very beginning of this. And so you kind of go through the whole thing knowing that, like, oh, well, this is not going to end well for anyone, probably. But, uh... I don't know. I, I'm a little hesitant in the like how romanticized the the doomedness of the romance is, but I don't know. I I guess I kind of expected that coming from Max Ophuls, where I was like, mm-hmm. well, he's a pretty romantic filmmaker anyway. So, I uh, I wasn't too shocked <laughs> to to see all of that in here. So, but yeah, I I enjoyed it. I thought the cinematography is beautiful. Basil. Yeah, I also like this movie. Um, I I feel the same way about the cinematography. Uh, and for most of the movie, I was like, oh, this movie's fine. Like, I like the way that it looks. And then the very towards the very end, everything kind of coalesced for me. And then I was like, oh, no, like, this movie's about something different than I thought it was. Something creepy. And... <laughs> Uh, I sort of like that, and then uh, 
then the movie was over, but I was like, wow, what a breezy 87-minute watch. <laughs> Flows right by. Bring back those 87-minute movies. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> if you were to chart our feelings on movies, <laughs> I bet there would be a, a very distinct spike at less than 90 minutes. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hey, Tom, will die. <laughs> I gave uh, Proud Mary my very generous two-star rating, and I'm sure the 88-minute runtime had a lot to do with that. It's like, oh, that movie was felt like it barely started, and now it's over. Nice. <laughs> Got a whole rest of my day to do. <laughs> but uh, but also, I mean, I think that the way that he uses like continuity editing with his like flowing camera stuff or whatever is like. It it makes scenes move real fast and real smooth and pretty enjoyably. So even with a longer movie, I'm sure I'd still be like, ah, what a nice jaunt through cinema. <laughs> Steven? Okay. Uh, so yeah. uh, this is a rewatch for me. I watched this like seven years ago when I was getting into film and I remember really enjoying it then. And so in preparation for this, I uh, read the short story, watched uh, all five adaptations of this movie twice. What the? And I came to the conclusion that I don't like any of them. That was too much work. (laughs) Um, I really didn't like the short story in particular, but I thought some interesting things could have been done with it, as uh, John Stahl did in Only Yesterday. But with this, I didn't like how... um, I've been trying to think of how to describe this, but I don't like the way that Ulfus has tried to, like, take this story and it's, like, the inherent, like, ugliness of humanity. Like, you've got these two characters who are put in these, like, uh, situation they can't deal with and they're like, it just goes through like a series of events that ends in tragedy for both of them. And But when I was watching this, I couldn't really understand like what um, what sides or morals that Ulfus was taking in this. Like, um, throughout watching it, because um, this was like one of the Hollywood films that Ulfus made and he's out of all of them, he's, like, trying to owe back to his, uh, like, European-German work. And this contrast, mm-hmm. like, didn't work for me at all. And the entire time watching it, especially knowing that the character was 13 when she, like, fell in love with him, as you see her, like, this Be- Justin Bieber-like devotion to this penis. <laughs> I kept thinking of Justin Bieber German verse. <laughs> and, like, the devotion to the character. I'm just like... I don't want to see Stephane this. Fever. I don't want to see the story. Like this is something that I can't. Well, I mean, there's lots of things I like that I can't connect with. But this really made me feel uneasy, which is why I watched it ten times. And <laughs> I just trying to figure out the emotional connection. I just ended up feeling kind of sad that this was a story that just did absolutely nothing for me whatsoever, despite like. Alphys's obvious formal qualities and etc. I, I think I, I understand what yeah I gotta oh. understand what you're feeling there because I had a similar feeling. About Ruben the last hasn't movie. said what well, I, I know. I'm, I'm gonna let him talk. I just wanted to <laughs> touch on Steven's point real quick. I felt similarly about one from the heart where I was like, I don't care about this story, and so it ruins the rest of it for uh, me. Sorry, I didn't but... want to get into this, but I listened to the episode on One of the Heart, and I actually agreed with everything you said, Patrick, but I haven't seen the film in years, so I don't know. Uh, let's let Ruben, let's let Ruben sorry, jump in on this sorry. And yet you gave it four stars. <laughs> no, I liked it, but it was just because of the dance scenes. Um, I like this movie, but not a lot um i you know i have the same i enjoyed it more intellectually than emotionally i think that um like everyone has said he he has a very flowy camera movement um and uh i think that ophels seems to intuitively understand the strange position of women in the world of being on display at all times in a way men don't. 
Like I think it's uh, interesting, an interesting point of comparison between the two major characters that um, Lisa's decision to not make herself marriage material when they're living in lounge or whatever um, mm -hmm. is like a big scandal. But when this guy just stops playing piano, he can still pretty like people whisper and things, but he can pretty much still go about the world. He's not banished by his parents uh, <laughs> to a different city um, for doing it. And I think all of that stuff is good, but I also think that it has a little bit too much sympathy for this dude. And unlike the last movie we discussed, One from the Heart, I think that um, you do need to be invested in these characters in order to uh, like care about the movie. Whereas I think in One from the Heart, um, the m movie is questioning why we're invested in certain romances and certain ideas and it's more like theoretical as opposed to like, you know, anything about those two specific characters. Like in this one, I think, you know, um, so like Ophels is uh, very good at humanism. So like he can have like these throwaway lines that add dimension to characters that are really surprising. Like towards the end of the movie, I was like, whoa, um, when her husband and her are in the carriage and she's talking about, you know, how she didn't want to see him, how she wanted to leave, how uh, she feels really bad about it. And he's like, you talk as if this were out of your hands, as if you don't have a will. And like, you can tell how hurt he is by the situation. And I was like, whoa, this is cool. Because a lot of people treat, you know, tertiary characters as very, like, uh, disposable. Mm -hmm. um, but it gives maybe a little bit too much humanism to, <laughs> to Stefan. Because uh, I don't like that. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, I, I feel like I might have just... Maybe my interpretation of the movie isn't what the movie is actually about, but I actually thought that uh, I, you were not supposed to be on board for their relationship in a similar way to One from the Heart. Like, I thought that the movie was sort I, of... I don't disagree with that. I, it's, I'm not saying that, like, this movie's arc is saying that you should root for them to be together or be sad that um, things don't work out. But I do think that at his heart, Ophel's like, you know, looks for the humanity in everyone and that there's like a sort of tragic comedy to like his ending and being like, you know what, I am going to do this duel and die. And I'm like, I'm not sad for this guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is like very basic remunerative justice for his life. Um, it, I, I guess and, so. I mean, like, I think... It, well, I, I was... Oh, go ahead, Stephen. No, I keep <laughs> thinking back to like, uh, if you see like Alpha's disgust as a humanist, while like he tries to give. I think the the biggest problem I have with this movie is that he's trying to like. I I do feel like he is trying to maintain equal sympathy for both characters because the novel does this especially, and I feel like what Alpha's is trying to do is he's using his like uh, formal techniques to like, even though he realizes that. Uh, kind of, um, let's say, objectified in different ways. Uh, my favourite shot in the movie comes in about 10 minutes in, where her as a 13-year-old opens the door for the pianist yeah. as he's walking out, and then she finds herself trapped between the uh, brick wall <laughs> and the uh, door. And I was like, oh, that's a very nice visual shot. And then a second later, I was like, oh, this is taking me out of the movie completely. Like, because, like, the parallels from yeah. there, like, these kind of, like, the visual interviews, like the train sequence, which we'll probably talk about later. But I felt like it. these things are good in isolation, where you can talk about them, like, formally and as an intellectual choice. But in conveying a narrative where you are trying to, like, get a grasp on these two people as human beings and then you like want them to be together and you don't want them to be together. When in the end I saw two characters in a screenplay that only exist for plot stuff to happen and not two human beings. Uh, 
I guess um, I can kind of see that. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I I was I was actually pretty disinterested in the movie when it started. Um, I guess in the sim in a similar way to Basil, like I was kind of like I don't really understand. Like you know, I guess like I kind of understand that like oh this is a person that I'm devoted to because I'm very young and I'm naive and he's like you know very handsome and he plays beautifully and it's like these really simplistic reasons why she's in love with him at that point but then i kind of started not understanding why she continued to be in love with him later on when you know there were good reasons for her not to be in love with him anymore um but for some reason at, at the point at which like she i guess has his son and is raising him and has married the the soldier that was in love with her from lens uh i was i was more invested in that dynamic i guess that that like sort of like love you know because i i guess this is a thing that max ophels loves is like these weird love triangles where there's this separation in the character of you know a sort of like social duty but also a passion that they have to split themselves between and i think that he actually does some weird things with that especially with with the son in particular like the the weird way that right before she sees stefan again the son like before they go out the son's like can i sleep in your bed tonight and so when she comes home in her bed is this like you know living reminder of this man <laughs> and I was like, this yeah. is kind of weird and upsetting. She actually yeah, right says that's a concession like... because they just moved there as well. So I thought yeah. that was a bit off yeah, nose, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> I, but I liked that. I was like, ooh, I wrote down on my notes. I was like, this is, there's some weird like psychosexual stuff going on with this, uh, this whole mm. plot point. But yeah, go ahead. The sun in and of itself is like a very like I think intentionally strangely obliging in a way that it's like a little unnerving. <laughs> like he's too nice. He's like, Oh, I'll go away, mother. Yeah. Then I'll get to come see you again when I come back. <laughs> That's like <laughs> this sounds How Switzerland's daddy. <laughs> Yeah, I called but, him daddy. Yeah. Can I, sorry, can I just point out? I think it's very interesting he mentioned Switzerland, which I think is where Ulfus filmed the film he made before we went to Hollywood. So, like, he's like, oh, I want to go back home and make more European films, but I'm stuck in America. Ah! <laughs> they won't let me use the H in my fake name. <laughs> the H? You mean a letter from an so It's neither Opals woman. nor Ophals is his actual name. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, um, uh, his... I, do, I do think it's funny that he's listed as Max Opals and not Ophals here. I think it's funny he's not listed as Maximilian Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, the uh, name of the, uh, the um, piano player in the novel is actually named R. So it's just like, and the woman in the novel doesn't even have a name. She was given uh, the name in the film version. <laughs> well, actually, actually, she has a different name. Humanism. <laughs> <laughs> it's like last year over Marion Badge. You don't need a name. You only need a letter. Yeah, I started watching the essay, the like video essay that came with this movie, um, and the first thing that they mention is the way that that the because the story is basically told from Liza's point of view. Every time you see her, like she's still playing herself, but she's dressed up differently. And like, oh, here's her as a sixteen-year-old girl, but she's the same actress like she's the same like 30 year old joan fontaine and then like oh she's a little <laughs> bit older joan fontaine and then she's like you know playing herself as a 30 year old so it's like it's it's always her just in these like different guises of age and so i i kind of liked that the the whole thing was her like coming to the realization that like this guy's no good for me I and mean, it takes her a little it takes her a little too long to realize that but <laughs> i i do kind of i don't know like i feel more invested in this than I did in one from the heart because that's told from kind of like an omnipotent like pulled back story where it's like oh we're just watching these two characters and here it's actually like coming from this point of view of this one person so the whole story you know she is sort of framing it and I I, I do kind of like that you can make the insinuation that she you know drives Stefan to 
go get killed in this duel by, you know, basically like forcing him to see her side of the story in this letter, because it's not necessarily the way things happened. It's just the way that she frames it in her letter. And like, you know, I guess like guilts him into going to his death. So there is sort of a another like weird element to the story in that way. I mean, the death is also her fault in the other sense that her husband never would have challenged him to a duel if she didn't yeah. leave him for true, Stefan. True. So well, she wouldn't have gotten well, the cabbage if any of us. Yeah, had I mean, yeah, I mean that's that's sort of my like bent for the whole movie is that this movie is actually like about like the fallacy of like a kind of romantic. Uh, obsessive love because like literally everything in her life gets destroyed because she can't let go of this dude that she has no reason to like anyway <laughs> anyway because he doesn't even remember her yeah I, when I say like invested in that I don't mean like rooting for it yeah I mean like it moves you emotionally like that's you know there's a fundamental level at which I don't understand why she likes him <laughs> yeah, I think that that's part of the point, uh, at least for me, like that, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she just latches on to this tiny, like, celebrity crush thing very early on in her life, and then just decides, oh, we're meant to be together, and then never lets it go, I've... in spite of all the evidence that she should really do that. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that... She's not a super cool dude. <laughs> I did yeah. get that, and I think... I still don't think that I disagree with you. I think that there's uh, I don't know. There's a bridge that's not there for me. Yeah. Like, I see the point, and I'm like, I, it doesn't get me to it. I'm just like, there it is. I think Hello. it's because <laughs> Alphys doesn't really do anything with it. Like, he's obviously built up uh, Liza, um, like in the early scenes where you show, uh, he shows her, uh, like going to the library and reading all these books so she can become more educated and learning manners. <laughs> but it doesn't, like, go anywhere because it's only in, like, the, the possession of this man. It's like you have this very strong female character who can't even pass the Bechdel test. It's all in the, like, <laughs> single point of service. And I don't think Othel's yeah. critiques this nearly as enough as, like, it should be. Which is what the Chinese version of it oh. did pretty well. And I thought it did. Brag. I mean, she's like standing outside his house. She's like very clearly a stalker to me. I was like, she just goes like every day after work, she just goes and stands outside his apartment it, building. She breaks into his house <laughs> yeah. to steal his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> she's, I think that, you know, it's a. Uh, it might be slightly understandable, but to me, especially coming now as a uh, contemporary audience member, I'm like, whoa, this woman's really off the deep end with this guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> she needs to pull it back a little bit. And then, like, and I also think it is sort of funny, like, again, I can't tell if this is intentional, but that, like, how obsessed she is with him is, like, what he likes about her. Like... <laughs> Yeah, he's just like, oh, you know a lot about yeah. me, Ooh. because he's a narcissist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I barely yeah. know anything about you. Yeah. Like he keeps saying, I, I barely know anything about you. But then, like, he never really pushes with questions. He like ask her a question, <laughs> and then like she doesn't really answer it, and then she asks him. She's like, no, tell me more about yourself, and he's like, oh, okay. I guess so. <laughs> Please tell me um, more about myself. Yeah. <laughs> I actually think one of the most interesting things about the Opal's films that I've seen is that the women exist in an impenetrable sea of men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that they don't have any women options to <laughs> escape. Um, and that whenever they go to, like, another woman is like, man, being a woman is hard. And they're like, I know. Like, uh, I also have a husband. And I'm like, that's not what I wanted to talk about. And it's like, so boys, right? <laughs> It's like, oh, jeez, well, <laughs> this again. The, mo um, the most interaction with, like, a communal group that's in, like, the early parts of the film is her, like, being teased for attracting this man. It's like, oh, you're blushing! You have an attraction to this man! <laughs> and then all yeah. she... All, all, when they're all cleaning the rugs. All to do was to have that character say, don't obsess with this man for the next 40 years of your life or you will die. <laughs> <laughs> she definitely her. would have listened to her. Yeah, <laughs> that that would have worked on me when I was a thirteen-year-old with a crush. Yeah. <laughs> what more do you need? 
<laughs> I really like the very obvious age difference between the two of them. Like, the other girl is, like, clearly, like, very close to being an actual, like, young teenager. And then Joan <laughs> yeah. Fontaine's She's just, like, like 18. a 30-year-old woman. And, and then she also <laughs> plays up the teen stuff in a really shrill way where she's like, Ah, oh, my God! <laughs> and I was like, oof. I'm glad she didn't stick around. If you... If you'd prefer this kind of weird idea played a little bit more naturalistically, but I don't know if you would, it is in Gigi. <laughs> like in Gigi, they actually do an impressively believable job of convincing you that an adult woman is a teenager <laughs> who you watch grow up on screen. Creepy. Um, that sounds cool. Which I thought was really cool when I was younger, but now I'm like, hmm, maybe that was just selling the pedophilia <laughs> angle much harder. Right. <laughs> <laughs> is that teenagers are just secret adults waiting to grow up on screen. <laughs> right. Unsettling. Thank heaven for little girls. <laughs> this, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> this is the second movie that we've done for the podcast where the main character is a living mannequin for her job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. We watched Mannequin with Jim yep, Crawford. Popular, <laughs> popular occupation, I guess. For <laughs> we're poor but we're attractive going women. The, canon. <laughs> the mannequin canon. The mannequin canon. said at one point the letter of an unknown woman was one of his favorite stories, so that connection doesn't surprise me. Bosagi? Yeah, Bos- um, he took. Yeah, he took. Bo- Bosagi directed Mannequin, didn't he? Uh, I think so. I, I can't remember. Oh, I have to look that up. I can't. Sorry. <laughs> I watched too many. I, the reason no one knows anything. I've seen too many. <laughs> the reason I picked it. Yep. But uh, oh yeah, this is another thing that I don't know exactly how to reconcile. I was just a question more than anything. Like towards the end, there becomes some like kind of vague religiosity. There's like the nuns, and then like the she yeah. dies in Saint Catherine's school, and like her death is like this weird shot of, or the death of her son, there's, like, that weird shot of just, like, a cross with, like, lit things. And there's some vague stuff about religion in Earrings of Madame de as well. And I was like, so it's, like, Ophel's, like, a secret Christian, and, like, part of his problem with people (laughs) is that they're, like, (laughs) abandoning Christian morality. And that seems very stern, though. What? (laughs) Yeah. I said the nun seems very stern. There's oh, yeah, a shot yeah. of her walking down a hall where it's like very like dark and unnerving. And I was like, I hate this hallway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and she's really rude when she's like, "You gotta tell us something." And she's like, "I, I don't want to tell you anything about my baby. Leave me alone." <laughs> yeah, I I like the transition. <laughs> no what idea. A, well, the oh. transition into that into that shot that you're talking about with the nun in the dark hallway, like mm-hmm. because it's her walking away from the train where she just left Stefan, he gets on the train. She's her walking away, and then it, like, dissolves into this nun, like, coming out of the darkness at you. And I was like, whoa, this is weird. Scary. Uh, creepy uh, looking. <laughs> yeah, but also I, what a bad reason not to, like, tell, <laughs> tell him he has a son. She's like, I, I wanted to be the only woman who never asked you for anything. And I was like, that's <laughs> yeah, stupid. Yeah. You should ask him for stuff. You have a kid. <laughs> together <laughs> walk up to him with the baby bump it's gotta be it's the only way to keep her love pure not to... it's a I don't blame the actor because that's a hard performance to nail when he finishes reading the letter and he finds out that he has a kid that he never met and is already dead and he's just kind of like sadly bemused about it he's like hmm interesting revelation in my life yeah. And I'm like, I don't know how I would react There's to that. A shot. Yeah. That reminds me of... There's a shot of him, <laughs> oh. like, holding the white flowers, like, the symbol of the boy dying, and he's just like, oh, that's yeah. what these man. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna die now, bye. <laughs> yeah, apparently the, uh, the framing device of him having the duel was added yeah, by uh, Ophels, because the book, the book does not have that, and... Uh, also, Johan's not a character. No. Ophels loves him some duels. <laughs> yep. yeah, he, does. he, does, I he believe... does love those, like, the uh, sort of, like, jilted husband characters, and 
also them having a duel. I believe to kill I've seen five of his movies and three of them have duels in them. <laughs> nice. Duels are very romantic. He's a very there's, a, man. there's like a page and a half in the novel dedicated. Maybe I missed this in the movie, although I don't think I did. There's a page and a half in the novel dedicated to like uh, she's trying to like get funds for herself to live independently, and so she like turns to prostitution. And in the um, short story, I got a very like anti-sex worker vibe from the way that Spike's writing about it, like trying to like sell her soul and etc. While in mm. like the movie, I felt like this was uh, this element was like removed entirely for the most part. And I can't really like think about how I feel about this because at one time it is like this negative depiction which he might have done to like reside for humanity but at the same time i also think that's something that should have been reconciled with like um oh one of them doesn't i can't remember um i didn't really know how to feel about that but then again like that isn't something i should talk about yeah. given it's just the movie knowledge but I, that really stuck in my mind rewatching it yeah i i i would assume that it wasn't included like he i would assume they changed it probably because of the motion picture code probably because they were like yeah, oh no we can't I thought have it was pretty, to be a prostitute yeah i thought it was pretty <laughs> amazing that he was able to get a baby out of wedlock in this movie but even that seems pretty scandalous <laughs> for 1948 yeah. yeah that damn that damn production code well that's fine i didn't but, need to see her become a prostitute that yeah. doesn't sound fun to me <laughs> Sorry, yeah. OG. We already got material. that covered in Blonde Venus. Oh, like this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Classic. But, uh, Who's Canis callback? Oh yeah. <laughs> this this movie yeah. could have used um, could have used a few more musical numbers, but you know. <laughs> we, we, and by we I mean specifically Patrick mentioned at the top of the podcast. Uh, earrings of Madame De. Well, you were breaking up, but I assume that's what you were talking about. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think it's much funnier that they she uh, that Ophel's switched the roles in that movie. Like, I don't know about the source text for that, but in uh, Earrings of Madame De, like the kind of narcissistic, uh, like cool like, socialite one is the one that she's married to, and the one that she's longing for is, like, the block of wood. <laughs> That's, like, no personality. <laughs> and I, it's something that I always think is really funny because you expect it to so much be the other way um, yeah. in, like, a romance novel. She's, like, married to, like, the cool, like, player dude, and she's, you know, in that instant, she's annoyed because, like, He's too cool. He's playing with everybody. And she's like, man, this boring guy's exciting because all he does is think about me and no one else. It's <laughs> a good reversal. It's a little, little jujitsu there. Or is that judo? It's, it's judo. That's I think it is reversals. a funny parallel with the judo. The fact that we did one from the heart just last week. Because it does seem somewhat similar in that by the end she has like a whole lot of really nice stuff, but then she's still like, ah, it's still not as good as being with that guy, even though he's not even a pianist anymore. And he doesn't, he doesn't remember, remember you. Me. And like even in her letter at the end, she's like, ah, oh, but my love for you is still true. And I was like, why though? Yeah. <laughs> but why? <laughs> why though? I mean, my interpretation of that was, as Rory pointed out, like to kind of like twist the dagger further. <laughs> but I think for Ulfus and uh, Spiger, way too sincere for that reading to be like that charitable. So, again, like. Uh, Am I going to have to legally change my name to Rory? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah i think it's okay i i i called uh shad shadden the whole time and i don't think that that's actually her name but it might be i don't know but she introduced <laughs> herself as shad and then i called her shadden the whole time nice. so it wouldn't be the first time that we've just called somebody the wrong name the whole time on the podcast <laughs> we love it i'm gonna call you domino yeah from now on. oh yeah i forgot that's my real name Nope. <laughs> Call me dinosaur. Do it. Call me dinosaur. <laughs> Just cool fair model. I like when they're walking in front of the fair in the snow. Mm. 
oh, yeah. Ferris wheel in the background. I am um, so cool looking. I don't rem- I don't remember seeing it established before they cut to the scene, but the shot where they're in well, the like fake train carriage or whatever and it like yeah. the background's going by and i was like yeah. well, that's a really cheap looking background like they couldn't get anything more realistic <laughs> yeah. and then he gets out and walks to the thing and it's like supposed to be a fake background i was like oh they got me <laughs> they switched it up on me there it's a fun it's a fun double twist because i'm watching it as a film critic and i'm like oh this movie's pointing out like how this whole like fantasy thing it's not real and then it's like no it's literally not real <laughs> it's literally <laughs> fake. It's, it's, it's sort of like amusement park ride where they just put it's diegetically not real nope <laughs> that was a I, good reversal <laughs> i wondered if they got like real snow too because like usually movie snow has like is like too nice looking it was like kind of slushy when they were walking around outside i was like this looks like real snow this looks gross <laughs> <laughs> not that perfect movie snow that I'm used to and just shortly after that is one of the um, creepy moments of the movie that really did land for me which is when she gets a candy apple <laughs> <laughs> and something about getting a candy apple made her seem so young mm, in the moment yeah. and <laughs> he's like mm, let's go back to my place and fuck and I'm like oh god <laughs> and then he, re- he revisits it from an unknown child yeah. He revisits that moment later in his memory. He's like, mmm, yeah. candy apple. Yeah, it's one of his nice memories. Is at that time, she was really childlike. Oh, I remember this now. <laughs> oh, yeah, I meant to say something before, but uh, when you're talking about his bad reaction to it, it reminded me that I just watched Before I Wake, and Kate Bosworth has some very funny non-reactions to things, like when uh, that dude in the mental hospital tells like his whole life story about like all the horrible things that happened to him, and then it just cuts to her, and she has like the blankest stare. Just <laughs> so you do or don't agree with my pick of her for worst actress of two thousand seventeen? I loved it. Work eight, Bosworth. No, but uh, I mean, she probably wouldn't have been my pick, but only because uh, I kind of don't mind wooden. <laughs> acting in horror movies as much as in other movies, but uh, it was very noticeably uh, bad and very funny <laughs> that she just staring off into space constantly, and I was like, whoa, she really isn't reacting to anything emotional that's going on. She doesn't even seem present in this moment. She's on a lot of drugs. Yep. Don't fact check me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I have I have no more notes. Celebrities are stupid. That's the theme of this movie. Yeah. Celebrities are <laughs> um, I, I liked the uh, <laughs> I liked the shots where after she runs away from his house because um, he uh, re- she realizes that he uh, doesn't recognize her. She like runs out into the street and there's that policeman. But it's like, excuse me, can I help you? And she's like, ah, 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 ah,
Because I was confused for a second. I was like, the anime is an adaptation of this? Because I've never <laughs> <Yeah>. seen it. <laughs> I was like, that's that does, the, the anime does take place in the 30s, briefly. Oh, nice. Yeah. There's uh but love relationship between Daisley Ridley and I left at the Patel. part when the all-women band says... <laughs> oh. uh, uh, I left at the part when the all-women band says, I like to play for married people. They have homes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Then they all just get up and leave while yeah. they're not looking. <laughs> they don't even show them leaving. They just like turn around and they're gone. They're like Batman them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they had to analyze something in science. <laughs> yeah. Back to the so lab. that's what that feels like. <laughs> the secret cast of Suicide Squad. So. Um. <laughs> There was something else that I want to say. Um, I guess I'll just uh, if, if anyone. No, I've got nothing. My last thing is that yeah, shot right. that Stephen was talking about. I think is a really nice shot. You could probably hear me getting excited about it when he was talking about it, and I think it really captures the thing that I think Opus does really well, which is that men trap women in a glass case of their yeah. undoing. <laughs> I really want to rewatch. It's like she's slightly participatory in it, but like he really is like. There you are behind the door. Anyway, see ya. <laughs> I really want Have to, fun in your glass cage. I really want to rewatch Lola Montez now because that shot, the final shot of her in the cage, is like stuck with me for nearly a decade now, and I want to see if it holds up. It does. The movie's cool. Mm. I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I trust you, Basil. Don't worry. <laughs> You trust me to have correct opinions about movies I haven't seen yet? Yeah, it's worked so far. <laughs> Except for um, Phantom Thread. Right, for I haven't seen Phantom Thread. It doesn't come out until tomorrow here. No, I meant that my opinion of it was that it was bad, but then I was wrong once I watched the movie. Uh, <laughs> sounds like a rewatch is in order. Oh, man. My opinion of it is that it's bad and I have seen the movie. Yeah. So, whatever. It's okay. I've seen the Phantom Menace. You can, uh... That's a prequel. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a, clearly a postquel. Oh, yeah. First they sew yeah, the thread and in, menace. and then comes the menace. comes in a purple costume. And is Dennis the Menace yeah. the sequel yeah. to that? Sometimes the opera's involved. The menace. But, uh, this is the... <laughs> Phantom slash Menace uh, <laughs> cinematic universe. Letter from an unknown woman cinematic universe. Uh, <laughs> she was an unknown girl. Then yeah, she wrote a letter. Then she wrote a conclusion. Then she was Donald Rumsfeld. And then she became a doctor and she found a body. And then it's 19 minutes of steady cam trying no, to that's find the, a body. That's the prequel. Yeah. And then Liam Neeson um, showed up, and <laughs> <laughs> how many, how many different unknown movies can we think of? Uh, Zero. One. Nope. So no thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If yeah. so, subscribe using your podcast listening application, and uh, Give us a five-star rating review on iTunes. You can check out all of our content yeah. on loosecannons.net, yeah. as well as a new video and, um, that I check posted out our, on our Patreon, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm getting to it. Okay, okay. I didn't, I didn't know if you were going to get to <laughs> it. Check out my website. Well, I'm still talking. You could have at least let me finish. <laughs> so I'm going to publish a new video on Friday. This is supposed to come out on Monday, so it should be out by the time this podcast is. Um I want to also thank Stephen for joining us. Thank you. Uh, would you like to plug your podcast, Stephen? No, it's terrible. <laughs> okay, don't listen <laughs> to Stephen's podcast. That's the, that's the don't plug. Listen to um, and no. yes, did Mitchell sign on off? Uh, sign off on this anti plug? Yes, I literally <laughs> talked to Mitchell an hour ago. <laughs> um, you and both agree. As Patrick was saying. And was nice enough to do. He has set us up a Patreon um, where you can 
donate if you think that what we're doing is worthwhile, and if you donate enough money, you can get rewards, just like every other Patreon in the world, including uh, we can do a podcast on a movie of your choosing, or write a review, or even make a video if you're willing to give enough money. So you can check that out on our website as well. My audio book offer was not a joke. You can, uh, yeah, I, I just want to give you the address. It's uh, www.patreon.com slash loose cannons. Yeah. taken, so we got that one. And Thanks. also shout out to Michael Quinn, our, our very first patron. Mm-hmm. He got That'd in early. Nice. An early adopter. Mm-hmm. The invenerable okay. one himself. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, everyone. The letter... From a known podcast is over. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. Bye. It's a, it. It's a it's a bad four hour movie, but a pretty good sixty four hour movie. <laughs>